The story was like something out of a gossip magazine. In 2018, an Instagram influencer with nearly a million followers, fashion sponsorships and activist leanings was hacked by a rival. The influencer's name was Michaela, a Brazilian-American model and musician with Princess Leia buns and several Spotify hits. I threw a glass at the mirror You told me that's bad luck To make myself clearer On one day, there's a picture of Michaela returning from Coachella. The next one is a photo of her in the music studio. And then, all of a sudden, she's hacked. The hacker was a woman named Bermuda, who wiped Michaela's feed clean and began posting pictures of herself. Bermuda was blonde, decidedly right-wing, a cookie-cutter troll. You have 48 hours to tell the world the truth, or I'll do it for you, read a caption under one picture. On Twitter, Michaela pleaded for help with the hack, but eventually she gave in to the troll's pressure. Michaela got her Instagram account back and agreed to come clean. She wrote, I love being open and connecting with fans, but I've been secretive about parts of my life. For fear of losing everything, I've worked so hard to build. My hands are literally shaking. I'm not a human being. Michaela and Bermuda were both computer-generated, digital influencers crafted by companies to have a certain look and perspective, one that, thanks to sponsorship based on follower counts, could prove hugely lucrative. The CG influencer had been outed, and for the first time she disclosed who had been pulling the strings, a secretive company based in LA called Brud. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And today on the show, I talk with one of the pioneers of virtual influencing, Sarah Decoux. Sarah co-founded Brad, the company at the helm of Michaela's Instagram, although Sarah has since left the company and has to remain contractually quiet about Brad's inner workings. She talked to us in May about influencing, the future of CG avatars, and what draws regular people to the stories of man-made creations like Mannequins and Michaela. One note, the interview was recorded a few months into COVID, but before the Black Lives Matter protests began. Sarah, thanks so much for being on the show. Right now you're in LA, but you're not from LA, right? I came from a very small town in Central California. Yeah. So I moved here when I was 17 years old. You know, it's kind of one of those towns that feels like a bunch of trapped dreams. What was it called? It was a small town called Atascadero. And it's really, it's just kind of smushed in between San Luis Obispo and Paso Robles, where a lot of people know with wine country and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there wasn't really much to do there. You know, when I was growing up, they kind of got rid of the bowling alley, the movie theater, and decided to redo the town a bit. So you have all these young kids trying to figure out their lives and also trying to figure out things to do. And it just, it kind of created a town that, you know, got into bad things here and there. There wasn't really much to do or... What bad stuff did you get into? You know, I surprisingly didn't really get into much Uh. bad stuff. I think... The reality is, and something that I don't talk about a lot, is I lost a lot of my friends to drug addictions. And so it kind of kept me from going down that path. So I very quickly got out of that town two weeks after I graduated. And I just moved to Los Angeles to Panorama City, actually, which I don't even know if people really consider it that. But 
I kind of just figured it out. I lived on a a blow-up mattress and went to restaurants by myself and talked to the people that were next to me and tried to figure things out. You came from a little town, California, and then you moved to LA. You're on a blow-up mattress. So what's your first impressions of the city? Why LA? Why did you move there? Because I couldn't afford to fly to New York. (laughs) Oh, you wanted to be in New York. I wanted to be in New York, yeah. Why? Why? I don't know. I think that it's a thing that was very much glamorized and things that I watched and photos that I saw growing up. And it just kind of was a place that I wanted to get to. Mm-hmm. Do you still and, want it? I mean, I go there so much that I think that I get a little bit of the best of both worlds. Obviously okay. not right now, but um, I think I got my fair share of New York. So I'm, I'm content with living in Los Angeles and being able to fly there, of course, and under <laughs> different circumstances. In the old way, in the olden days. In the olden days, yes. So before you got into the world of Instagram influencers and anything that you're doing today, what were those initial things you were doing in LA or what were you interested in? There wasn't a lot that I wasn't interested in. So I didn't go to school. So a lot of my learnings came from finding people that I found were really interesting or doing really interesting things. And I asked if I could either intern for them or, you know, just kind of shadow them a bit. So I kind of picked the people that I found interesting and learned from them. I wouldn't say that it was particularly a certain type of career that I was looking at. So I learned a lot of production. I learned a lot around music. I did a lot of talent development. Um, Do you regret not going to school? For a while I did. There was a lot of pressure and, you know, especially going into a lot of meetings or big conferences or anything like that. I feel like that's where that insecurity really pulls out of me is, oh, these people are so smart and so intelligent. I didn't go to school. I must not be worthy enough to be here. But I shook that after a little bit and, you know, Everyone learns differently. I didn't learn the traditional way, and that's okay. And I think that a lot more people are kind of taking this approach as well. So then, four years ago, you launched and co-founded a company called Brud and Mm -hmm. launched uh, Michaela's Instagram. Can you take us back to that moment, back to 2016, and just remind us what Instagram was like then? Four years ago, the whole entire space wasn't too dissimilar to how it is now. Look, the way that I looked at Instagram, it was kind of a place for people to go and narrate the lives of their alter ego, being that people will put their best selves online and you're only narrating those specific moments in time. And the way that content was being digested during that time as well, it was so fragmented and people were going around and they could just do one Google and find so many different things about one person So there's many, many different ways to tell stories. And so that's kind of what was going on around Instagram in that time. And then also there was a lot of fake news as well. And so it was really confusing because a lot of what people were posting, especially when you get brands involved, it kind of blurred the lines between what was true and what was false. Especially like the FCC at that time, there weren't that many regulations. So a brand could pay for someone to go and post something online and not necessarily have to do the hashtag ad and sponsored and all of that as well. So it was just really like blurry and mucky. Okay. So you helped create a a computer-generated online persona for an Instagram account, right? And as you said, 2016, and I know it's all too well because we just moved to America, it was the year of fake news. And I think Mm -hmm. America was the sort of epicenter of it as well. 
Um, yeah. And this time when there was a pretty dramatic realization that the things that we were consuming online weren't necessarily real. But I think also a feeling, at least in the US with the presidential election, that it was a little bit dark. What was the public's reaction to Michaela? Yeah, looking from the outside in, what I think I saw is that everyone would just started to play one giant game together, right? People don't really know how to feel about it. And they ask a bunch of different questions, you know, like, what is this? How does it exist? Why does it exist? Is it real? And then you have a bunch of different people that want to chime in on those questions and ask like, hey, I found this clue over here. Look at this. It could be this. And then a whole bunch of different conspiracies ensue as well. So what I saw is that it kind of acted as a mirror for people's own curiosity. So, so it's it's game. It's You gamified it. Yeah. And games are really great. They create empathy. They create connections. They create communities. So on one side, I saw that people were coming together to play a game. On the other side, you know, right. it also sparks fear and it's a new thing. And when people don't understand it, your fears pop up and you kind of look at things. And you're like, oh, what is this? What is, should I like it? Should I not like it? What's going on here? But I mean, what I would ask is, what was your natural reaction to it when you first saw it? I thought it was genius. <laughs> it's so simple that it, um, it amazes me at how much people want to engage with Michaela. It reminded me very much of gorillas and what gorillas have managed to achieve in terms of building this connection with an audience to the extent where, you know, they have characters like Murdoch who are, mm -hmm. you know, put into prison and people are phoning up um, and taking calls, you know, from Murdoch in prison, engaging with him in this you know, obviously virtual reality, but feeling incredibly passionate about these characters that somehow represent them or they see themselves in. And, and it's easier to do that for a lot of people than with real people, which I find fascinating. When we spoke before this, you talked about some historical um, references. So I would love to get into one of them, which was Lester Gaba's story. So Lester Gaba is responsible for creating Cynthia. Cynthia, named for the model, the wife of a famous industrialist who was depicted sitting casually, motionless, with an elbow on her knees and a cigarette in her hand. Which is the like first socialite mannequin, I guess we would call it. But yeah, so Cynthia was created for Saks Fifth Avenue, but she kind of got this fame when she was photographed by Life magazine with Lester Gaba. And they were just kind of showcasing how lifelike mannequins had been. And from there, it kind of launched her socialite career. And she was invited to a bunch of high-profile weddings and events. And she even got gifted clothing and jewelry from all these coveted brands and and what's so fascinating to me is just how influential media was at that time, right? You know, it's 1937 and you have a mannequin on the cover of Life magazine where you're going to get your news on culture and politics. And so if you have this mannequin there that's glamorized, of course, there's going to be a lot of people that follow suit. So it's just interesting how that influence has changed over time from owned by publications and now more controlled by social media. And she became such a name, this person, mm -hmm. Cynthia, that she had her own newspaper column and radio show mm -hmm. and she'd be invited to dinner parties and people would want to sit <laughs> next to a mannequin. Yes. It seems you know, completely absurd. But she couldn't give interviews but, because she had laryngitis. <laughs> exactly. Whereas your character, Michaela was able to give interviews, was able to interview people. I mean, she interviewed at Coachella, right? 
was able to engage on, you know, so many levels because of technology. But it is interesting how people respond to these characters and I'm not sure what the reasoning is behind it, but it is quite genius marketing. Yeah. Hence the reason we wanted to get you onto the show. I mean, all these characters that are out there now, they can tell stories in so many different places. And I think that that's what's really special, right? It's because you can read an interview in a publication, you can listen to different characters' music. And all of this is tied up in what we now define as the influencer economy, right? And you've been a big part in defining what that influence economy looks like on particularly on uh, on Instagram but also on TikTok and and other places today at what point did you know that what it was that you were creating was actually making an impression um the whole space kind of changed and and it really showed through when um publications like Forbes Time Business of Fashion started writing about it as it was changing the industry um And then also you have heritage brands like Prada that see it as something that they could tap into. And in addition to that, you know, seeing a digital character that took part of Time's 25 most influential people on the internet. I think that that's really kind of when it was like, oh. But I think it never really started with wanting it to turn into an influential type thing. You know, I think that we have to look at it from different perspectives as well. You know, it's not just a thing that's on Instagram. It's a whole different ball game. And there's so many different ways that you can interact with these different digital entities. Right. Can you maybe explain what the influencer economy means? What is it? Essentially, you have a brand or a company or an individual and they want to market their product or message to a specific audience that someone else or an individual or a group has built and accumulated. So that audience has a value. And then from there, it's up to the two parties to kind of decide what that specific value is. And and you try to do your best in order to make it authentic and get around people not paying attention to the hashtag ad and sponsored and all of that. And who who is setting the price point? So who is determining what? You could charge a brand like Gucci, for example, to to dress someone like Little Michaela or another influencer. Um, I think it really depends. You know, it depends on the market. It depends on so many different variables. I don't think that there's one space or there's one place that you could go to that, oh, this is the number. Okay, great. You're making it up. Yeah. It's, it's on the fly. <laughs> I mean, a We're lot just of throwing it, out numbers. <laughs> I think everyone, honestly, at this point is just throwing out numbers. What's the craziest number you've heard of in influencer marketing? Oh, I think the first time I was like, whoa, this is this is wild, was a 14-year-old. This was back in the day when I was working on other stuff. For 10 seconds of a mention of a specific brand, which I will not name right now, in one of her YouTube videos was 100K. Just for, for 10 14 seconds. For a 14-year-old. For a 14-year-old. Oh, my God. Yeah. You can get into the millions, you know? Then you have different people that are sponsored by different brands, and that goes into the millions. My 11-year-old daughter came to the studio to listen to this because I, <laughs> I guess she's quite interested in this space, but <laughs> I hope she isn't. <laughs> Why do you hope she isn't? Well, because screen time is a major issue, and... Oh, she definitely doesn't need at 11 is to be spending more time behind a screen trying to find a way for her to get more followers, to be able to talk about more stuff, to be able to potentially get a brand to pay for her to do 
something to hopefully pay her back for all the hours that she's invested into the platform, which is paying for the platform in the first place. So, and I've read plenty of stories about influencers that have, <laughs> at the end of the day, ended up spending more than they've ever earned on accessories and mm-hmm. pets and travel and all the rest of it to try to make sure that they had enough interesting content to show their fans. There was a statistic around children, how the first thing that they said that they wanted to be when they grew up was a YouTuber, when back in the day it used to be an astronaut. I thought that that was pretty terrifying. Yeah, tragic. Well, I think if you ask my daughter today what she would want to be, it wouldn't be a YouTuber, it would be a TikToker. Oh, yeah. right, right. I'm not sure that's any better. So just thinking about influencing in general, and what are the things that you've seen that really make a difference to raising follower counts? Because in the influencer world, this is pretty much all that counts, right? Is how many people are following the stories that you're posting. Okay, I'm going to say something extremely unpopular right now. Go for it. We love that. I hate data. Oh. Um, and I found that things really worked when we weren't looking at data. And okay. so I've always kind of gone off of intuition. And I think that that comes from a very early age when... You know, I would just look at things and dig really deep and try to find what was interesting and new and kind of create from that space. And so I think that data kind of just shows us, you know, this worked, but do we really want it to keep working or do we want to reiterate and reinvent and and do that? And I found that, you know, when you're not looking at what everyone else is doing and you're not looking at data and you're not trying to follow a pattern, that things really help and grow. And So you've left Brud. What's your perspective on the influencer economy now? Have you have you moved on from it? I think that it's always going to be there. Yeah. I don't think that it's really going to change. I think that the way that we look at it is going to change. I think that people's education of the influencer economy is going to change. But I'm not super interested in it myself, just following along that path. But here's what I think that would be really, really interesting So right now, everyone kind of has their alter egos, like I was talking about previously, that they put online. They have one self there, and then they have their self that's offline as well. I think there's a place that could be existed to where people could continue different storytelling and alter egos and all of that and have it in a place that is very apparent that this is a story or this is real or this is my alter ego. And then you could live your own life as well as a regular person. For example, like Grimes and War Nymph, her whole character right now too, you know, she's separating herself from the character War Nymph that she's created. It's connected to Grimes and she's telling stories through that, but it's so apparent that it's separate from her. It's an extension of her. It's not her herself. Now, I know this is a question that you might not want to answer, but how much of the design for what you were doing with Brud and the work that you were doing into what your characters looked like was based on information or insight that you were getting from industries like the porn industry? <laughs> and I ask that because the porn industry is often, particularly with the web, so mm-hmm. entrepreneurial or so you know progressive compared to everybody else that a lot of the time when we're talking about alter ego or we're talking mm-hmm. about um, you know, AR and VR, the sex industry, the porn industry is miles ahead of anybody else. Mm-hmm. I love this question. <laughs> um, so I can't, I can't speak for us implementing anything into bread by any means. But what I will say is that whole industry is very, very interesting when it comes to technology. When you're looking at porn, you're seeing, <laughs> it's kind of funny that I'm going to say this, but 
I guess people are very, very determined to make things happen. And so you kind of look at, you know, people have taken deep fakes in that space and they're able to, sorry that I'm putting this in everyone's mind right now, but they're able to have like pretty much sex with celebrities if they wanted to, or they're able to watch porn of celebrities because with deep fakes, if there's enough images of a certain person online, you can make your own sort of sex tapes in a way with anyone that you wanted to see. Um, And I think that that's really dangerous, obviously, and there needs to be some protections there. But at the same time, you kind of look into that industry because it is so much more advanced than what we see on a day-to-day basis. And particularly, it's interesting right now, right? Because if this becomes, you know, if these become much more advanced, if what um, you know, we were able to create these are these alter egos that could be in multiple places at once, and we're all stuck at home. How will you know whether the person you're interacting with at the end of Zoom is actually me or you? You don't. There's going to be a point where you're not going to know that, um, and I think that's where regulations need to come in and put some guidelines in place, especially around ethics and morals. But I mean, I've already seen technology now that you can volumetrically scan another yourself or someone else and put that into a system and that person can interact and look like you and have the same mannerisms as well. So I think that it's going to become very dangerous at a certain point. And I think that there just needs to be education around how to take a look at something and know what's true and what's false. And it's kind of the wild, wild west when you look at it that way. Maybe you could hypothesize what could one potentially do with this kind of technology? Anything. <laughs> <laughs> Anything, anywhere, with anybody at any time. In all different with languages. Sarah Deku in the future. Um, so when we're next yeah. to a podcast, we won't know whether it's you. If we were doing a, a live talk, it might not be you at all. This could be the new future. Yeah. I can, I can think of a million negative things. So what can the positive part be of it? Yeah. So when you're looking at creating digital identities, now you have a politician that can be in multiple places and it's more of a security measure that, you know, if you're amongst a big group of people, maybe you don't have to be there personally, but also that's the awful thing about it too. You know, politicians could use it. Actresses could use it. Actors could use it. There's so many different people that could really benefit from having a digital version of themselves. I mean, if we're looking at media today and we're seeing how much we consume at the rate that we consume, it's so fast. There's not one human being that could actually make as much content as people could consume. So on one end, if you had a digital identity, then you can be in so many different places at so many different times and you could actually create multiple movies in in a day if if you wanted to, you know, but then that's also a bad thing because do you really want to somewhat create a monopoly when it comes to that world? Like, I, I don't really think so. That's fascinating. Right? But it's also terrifying at the same time. <clears throat> and then you could filter politicians and yeah. you could make sure the politicians are saying exactly what, what people want to hear as opposed to what they might naturally want to say. And data and algorithms will be able to predict how people can read an audience and tell them exactly what they want to hear at the right moment. Yeah, exactly. But then they could make the Fast and Furious franchise. They could do like 20 Fast and Furious films in in a couple of weeks. Well, they also 
did that in the last Fast and Furious as well. I've never watched Fast and Furious. Oh. Much to my well, son's funny, uh, dislike, I, I, I'm not a massive Fast and Furious fan. Oh, well, it's funny that you brought that up because Paul Walker, IAP, love him to death. He obviously wasn't able to finish the film. So what they did is they had his brother fill in for certain parts. And what they did was they were able to basically take Paul Walker's face and put it on his brother's body and finish the movie. So, I mean, there is technology to do that, but imagine that you were able to do that moving forward. And agents would love it because they could sell their artists to do commercials and the, the, the artists wouldn't have to turn up for the crappy cookie commercial. They could just do it via their, uh, what, what do we even call this? What are we calling this thing? <laughs> V2. <laughs> V2, okay. <laughs> Scary. Yeah. When you were developing um, within Brud, I'm guessing, but the first companies or the first sector that probably jumped on the Lil Michaela bandwagon was probably fashion and music. So maybe I'm hypothesizing here that the trajectory is that it's sort of porn, advertising, fashion, music, but those companies or sectors pick up on this technology faster than others. Will it be the same, uh, the same sort of companies or sectors that will be the first to, to experience and play with it? Or are you seeing it already in those areas? Yeah, I think in entertainment, it's definitely seen in that space. I think that that's kind of the space that it should live in. I think that it's really important when you have something that's so fantastical, but also looks so real. It's really important to be able to differentiate between what is real and what is fake. I think that ways that you could do that is, you know, implement little Easter eggs here and there and keep reiterating back to certain points like, hey, this is real or this is fake. But I see it more in entertainment. Outside of entertainment, that's where it really scares me. Sarah, thank you very much for, for your time. I think it's a horribly spooky conversation to, to get into, to leave people with, because I think it can go in so many different directions, but I have found it fascinating. Yeah, thank you. And that concludes our episode today. Thank you to Sarah for half informing us and half freaking us out. This is the episode that took the longest in the history of the, the show to produce. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, who I'm not allowed to say is amazing anymore, but she's pretty amazing, with editing from Elise Hugh and sound engineering by Mark Bush. And a massive thanks to our wonderful studio in Amsterdam, Center Sound. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We don't need as many subscriptions as Michaela has followers, but a few never hurts. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next week.